Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology innovation and education globally. My name is Bob Hawkins, and I'm Global Lead for Technology Innovation at the World Bank. And we are very pleased to have with us today the other, and might I say more stylish, Global Lead for Technology Innovation at the World Bank, Mike Chicano. Mike, welcome. Good morning, Bob. So Mike is probably the person with the most encyclopedic knowledge of EdTech that I know and definitely in the World Bank. When we have questions about EdTech, instead of going to Google, we ask Mike. Is that a fair representation, Mike? Well, it's a fair representation that you ask me. That's a whole other issue. Is it true that at one point you wanted to be a librarian? I thought about going to library science school. Those schools are no longer called library science schools. I guess they're usually information science schools. But yeah, that was a thought many moons ago. Excellent. So we started working together more than 20 years ago on Worldlinks, and a lot has changed since those days. What do you think has changed the most in terms of positive progress in the field of edtech, and where have we seen surprisingly little progress? Well, what's changed the most is obviously the technology itself. That's clear. We were talking in the mid and late 1990s about getting countries online for the very first time and trying to figure out how to get computers into countries that didn't have computer import regulations that were terribly conducive to bringing computers in and talking about a lot of basic capacity building, getting people to understand how to use computers and those types of things. While those issues are still there, of course, they are tiny in a comparative sense compared to what we had to uh, deal with back then. And the move from desktop to mobile and the move from a realization that we've been talking about technology use in education for about a century, actually, but now this is a fait accompli. This is happening in so many places. So there's just a much greater awareness of how to do this stuff and how not to do this stuff. And there's so many more people involved. And when there are people involved, people are trying things, people are learning. And I think that that's been the biggest positive change. The frustrating things are the things that haven't changed, the obvious stuff, which is the edifice complex, the desire to build things that can be seen to buy devices without any idea of what you're going to do with them. That's sort of the perennial challenge in this field, and it still exists today in all sorts of ways in many places. So you mentioned that the first challenge was just getting computers into classrooms, into students' hands, and frustrating you is the fact that that still leads uh, some of the dialogue around edtech. Why do you think that is still first and foremost in, in policymakers' minds, and how can we as the World Bank change that dialogue? Well, I think there's a willingness to buy stuff in lots of places that is compelled or impelled by a number of things, just not knowing what else to do. Education is a conservative sector. Things don't change quickly. People at least give lip service to its importance in many places, even if that importance isn't followed up by opening up the pocketbook. There is sort of a lack of understanding of everything else that needs to happen when you buy this equipment. And one thing that needs to happen uh, sort of full stop is that connectivity needs to be improved. Connectivity to schools has become increasingly apparent and acute during this time of the COVID crisis, connectivity to learners wherever they are. At national level investments in improvements in connectivity are something that our investments in our future and the futures of our kids. Absolutely. How do you reflect on some of these changes in technology with regard to the use of mobile devices, the use of cloud, the de-risking of the need for large amounts of technology capacity at the school level and being able to move that where the expertise exists? I remember when we first started, the challenge of getting the computers in the classroom, networking them, setting up the server, setting up the connection to the internet on a dial-up, all of that took just a lot of time and a lot of capacity to maintain. And it seems that with the cloud and mobile, a lot of that 
challenge has been moved away from the school. How do you see that further evolving and supporting this notion of needing to get more connectivity in the hands of students and teachers? I think the level of technical complexity at the school has changed radically. One, you've talked about the, as they say in the corporate world, the moving things off-prem or, or things happening in the cloud relieves a lot of the daily stresses on IT administrators inside school buildings and working in classrooms. Also, just the fact that a lot of the tech, not enough of it, a lot of it is just a lot easier to use. That's reduced uh, complexity at the end user level. And that is not because of anything that's happened in education. That's just because there's so much more tech in society. And so many people are using this stuff in their daily lives and they're able to bring in what they know, their perspectives on using this stuff, the ability to either swipe or to click, use it in support of their teaching and support of their learning. That's just the thing that's happened society-wide that I think schools have benefited from. The classic quote that people have said over and over is that, technologies are uh, revolutionizing education everywhere, but in the classroom. We've certainly seen that schools do not lead when it comes to use of technology, whereas 40 years ago, where most of this stuff happened as an offshoot of what was happening uh, in universities and in some very forward-looking education systems around the world, uh, schools are, for the most part, absorbers of what's happening outside their walls and then trying to figure out what to do with this stuff. The future is here, but just not evenly distributed. One of the things that's exciting is that there are just so many more people working in this field and a lot more innovations being introduced, except they're not being introduced equitably and evenly, particularly in the countries that we work in. When you look out at the landscape of innovations that are just starting to percolate, what are some of the innovations that excite you? And how can we do a better job of making access to these innovations more equitable, particularly for the students that we work with? And a lot of the stuff now in 2020 that's interesting, exciting, is not as visible as it once was. We used to talk about RAM and clock speeds and computer displays, and it was stuff that you could see easily. And now we're talking a lot about stuff at the back end or what's happening in the cloud or advancements in machine learning and data analytics that are more intangible, less accessible to most folks because it's not something you can see. But I think that's where a lot of the interesting things have been happening in the lab for quite a while. And we're now starting to see that not only rhetorically and in its bullet points and PowerPoint presentations, but we're starting to see it come out in real life. Thinking about some of the early work we did, Bob, I remember being in Ghana, helping wire a school for one of the first training for teachers. And I remember looking around the corner and one of the things that had been stressed was the need to keep the computers cool. And so some air conditioners were brought temporarily into the classroom. And I remember looking around the corner and the air conditioners were there, which was great. And the rooms were cool, which was great. But there was condensation that was being collected in little troughs. Someone, I guess, very innovatively had decided to float the power strips in those troughs of water. Thinking about those sorts of challenges we don't have anymore. I remember being at Makarere University in Uganda and people talk about having a server blow up and literally a server blew up. We smelled something and then there was smoke and then there was fire and then we had to evacuate. When things go wrong now, they don't go wrong in ways you can see. Physical things, they go wrong because of things that are happening with algorithms and data at the back end, which is reflective of where a lot of the innovation is happening. Where things go wrong is oftentimes where people are taking chances, especially the machine learning and data analytics stuff. I think that's where a lot of the most interesting stuff and the scariest stuff is happening. I distinctly remember our work in Ghana, a gentleman by the name of Nick Quenor, who was the father of the internet in Africa. He established one of the first internet connections in Africa. And he had a beautiful kind of Victorian office-like house that we were working in. And I was wearing a light blue shirt that we dubbed the mood shirt because you could always tell how hard I was working in terms of setting up the computers by the color of my shirt and the amount of sweat that I was producing. Yeah. 
we were doing this stuff over two decades ago. There are now two generations of folks in places around the world that historically, I think maybe from a Western perspective, people don't think about it as having lots of experience with quote unquote high tech or information communication technologies, but it's there. And you look at what people are doing across Africa, across Latin America, South Asia, in ways that are impacting and influencing what's happening in other parts of the world. Traditionally, you thought of what was happening in Silicon Valley or maybe in Tampere, you know, or in Finland or maybe in Tokyo or both the Cambridges. And that's where the innovation was happening. And now the innovation is happening absolutely everywhere. And there are people doing cool stuff because there's more experience because it's more of this stuff around in society and because of all these free tools, the LAMP stack or all these open source tools that are available to developers to do things much more cheaply than they ever have done before. And I think that's actually the most exciting thing for me about working in this space is just the opportunity to watch and to learn alongside lots of cool people doing cool stuff in places that maybe other people may not expect cool stuff to be going on. Yeah, we talk a lot about ecosystems in countries and the frustration of how can we support ministries of education to identify the cool stuff that's going on, procure it, and integrate it in the classrooms. What more can we do in this space to help the countries we work with find this cool stuff and use it more effectively? Yeah, in most cases, I think it's people sitting in government offices, high-level decision makers in ministries of education just don't even know what's going on to the extent they can just get out of the office and talk to teachers and talk to students and see what's happening and talk to companies. Frankly, I find that the best sources of information in so many places around the world about what's actually happening are companies because they're there, they're trying to sell their product, obviously, and service their product, but they have a much better sense of what actual needs are and how to fulfill them. And they're in much more regular dialogue with the people at the level of the classroom, the learner and the teachers about what's going on. It's an opportunity for us to be talking with those folks to learn from them, but that's a dangerous dynamic as well. When you have the folks who are selling the stuff, the ones who are most knowledgeable, not only about what it does, but also about what the needs are that they're trying to fill. And I think this is a real challenge for us and just exposing more people to what's happening. We've seen this with blogging and with Twitter or WeChat or whatever social media is out there. There is a lot more information out there about what's happening and to connect you to cool people doing cool stuff. The challenge is getting, I don't want to say the right people, but getting more people listening to those voices, voices, how, of, teachers, voices of students. How do we curate the information? Because it's really difficult for anyone to make sense of everything that's going on and make the right choices in terms of technology procurement and technology use. How can we best work with our clients to, to help them both be in contact with what's happening in the marketing industry but at the same time, having an open view of how to choose the best design for, for their needs. One thing is just publishing information that is not out there that should be. When you're saying clients, you're talking about uh, folks in government ministries of education with whom the World Bank talks most. Exactly. Regularly. When they go into a procurement process, oftentimes when it comes to technology, it's the first time that they've done it. And the companies who are responding or going to respond to this stuff, they've participated in this stuff in all sorts of other places. And they have a knowledge of how these processes work and don't work. And oftentimes they become de facto advisors to the very people who are, uh, well, I guess there's nothing wrong with that in one sense. Industry should signal to government what they're capable of doing. That's uh, totally legitimate. But when those are the only or predominant voices, you get into areas of real challenge and, and, and potential trouble. So even just publishing their proposals and keeping them available 
online. These are some basic things that can be done. Having requests for information precede big government procurements so that industry can share information about their products and services. And then other people can see what's being shared, civil society, uh, researchers, as well as folks in governments, so that there's just a greater transparency in the whole process and that more people are able to participate and learn from it. We had a really interesting experience in Sao Paulo a number of years ago where they put out a bid for ideas and just asked the market to send in their ideas on how to design a, a virtual classroom or an interactive classroom. And then they took all those ideas and created their own Frankenstein model, as they referred to it, and then put out the bid based on the best ideas that the market could provide at the time, which I thought was a, a super interesting process. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting and innovative. And they put out the bid and it's then not only to a closed group of vendors, but also so that other people can see what is happening, what government intends to do and how. And during that process as well, if I recall, there were opportunities for other groups from universities, from civil society, from teachers unions to be part of that process. So it wasn't sort of a closed procurement process that we see all too often in places around the world. Absolutely. And so this is going to happen more and more. Our fiscal year ended uh, at the end of June. We're going through our pipeline for next fiscal year. And of the projects we've looked at, 70% have some ed tech. And the 30% that don't, we just don't have enough information yet on or aren't, aren't fully developed. So there's going to be a lot of ed tech procurement, a lot of ed tech components in our pipeline of projects at the World Bank. This has been mostly driven by COVID in the last four months. What do you see as the most surprising impact of COVID? And where do you see the risks and opportunities on the horizon as more and more countries are adapting to this new reality? Yeah, with the quick closing of schools and this quick pivot, if that's the right term, to remote learning, it has exposed a lot of things, inequities and inefficiencies in systems that I think have always been obvious, but are just much more acute or people paid more attention to them in this environment. One thing that was very clear, I think, to me and I think to us in our talks with countries, now they basically now what do we do and how do we do it? And whereas before uh, the technology department or unit inside the Ministry of Education or the agency, what well, may have been high profile, they really didn't have a big seat at the table when it came to actual big decisions related to education. And all of a sudden they did, or all of a sudden there was a seat at the table for them and it was unclear who was going to take that seat and what they were going to say. And in a number of countries, we saw that companies jumped in to help and I'll put help in quotation marks. I'll put it in capital letters in bold as well because I don't mean to be cynical, because I think a lot of companies jumped in and offered real services, in some cases at a loss, to help with the quick transition to remote learning. But these things have costs. Someone has to pay, and they have costs over time. One of the things that has been made even more apparent right now is the relationship of ministries of education to the private sector. It has radically changed in a very short amount of time in sort of the way that maybe it did in the health sector even a generation ago. And education is sort of uh, later to the game here. And it's especially related to this move to the cloud because governments are trying to do everything inside their own computing facilities and manage their own servers. And all of a sudden they realized they couldn't scale up as quickly as they wanted to or they needed to. And so they had to go to outside groups and they kind of just said, what do we do? Tell us what to do. And in an immediate emergency response, that's maybe the best that can be done. But that's no way that you want to conduct yourselves or manage things over any longer period of time. A lot of countries during this COVID emergency phase are looking to other countries to learn from. And I know you've done a lot of research and engagement with China. 
How do you see the lessons learned over the years in China as being relevant to some of our countries? Or are there other reference countries that you would highlight? There are all sorts of reference countries looking at what's happening in regions and districts in smaller countries, Uruguay and Estonia. Uh, there are interesting things that have happened. But for me, over the last 10 years, and this is a message I try to share a lot, is the most interesting place in the world when it comes to ed tech is and has been, and I think will be China for a whole set of reasons. What's happening there at scale, the speed which is happening, the huge companies, the huge investments in ed tech by government, by individual families who are able to and willing to pay for uh, whether it's private tutoring, whether it's additional supplementary support, there's a, there's a huge market there and there's a huge pool of capital that funds all sorts of interesting things. And the competition there is brutal. So it's an innovator die sort of paradigm. You have hundreds of millions of people who live in the West, in, in the less developed Northeast, whose circumstances are more like you find in many other middle income, lower middle income countries around the world. And you have highly industrialized, rich cities along the Eastern seaboard. So you have this huge mesh of circumstances and you have mobile everywhere. And you've had it for uh, so not only mobile um, first, but mobile only approaches to technology. The predominance of these super apps like WeChat and different ways of thinking about community online to sharing information that I think are quite different, although we've seen Facebook copy a lot of this stuff and other groups try to learn from it, that are different from the way that some of this tech has progressed in the West. And at the same time, you see some of these Chinese companies, maybe with mixed or checkered success, start to move abroad. And to be players, whether it's buying ed tech companies in North America, in Europe, or merging into uh, African markets, I think as a way to share some of the lessons or some of the working models from China and other places. So I think that's the place to look for a lot of innovation. What is it about the Chinese system or the policies that have fostered this incredibly vibrant ecosystem of private sector ed tech solution providers? And yeah, can it be replicated? Yeah, obviously the growth of China, not only over the last 40 years for sure, it's the fact that most of the tech manufacturing and the supply chains are strongly rooted in China for so many products that are used in ed tech. And increasingly, it's not only a producer, obviously, but a designer of these things as well. You have a huge local market and there's a strong belief in the importance of education. So people, government officials, families are willing to invest which means that they're willing to put forth money that can be invested in, in ed tech and other solutions that are trying new things. In a weird way, China is kind of like the U.S. and that in the U.S., where there's a lot of innovation in ed tech because you have all these local buyers, school districts and schools and families who buy things, which means that it's really tough to sell lots of products at scale, if you will. But it means that all those small buyers, some of them aren't so small when it comes to U.S. states or some school districts, means that there is a huge diversity of demand and ability or willingness to try lots of new stuff. And in China, where you have central purchasing in many cases, but you also have property values in areas linked in part to perceptions of how good local schools are. And there are local school budgets that are used by school heads oftentimes to buy technology as a way to demonstrate that their school is good. Correlation is not causation. But it, there are a whole set of factors that have meant that China is just such an interesting place where so much is going on. And you have these monster companies. I mean, if you look at the number of ed tech unicorns, companies valued over a billion dollars, I think more of them are in China than anywhere else in the world. And those are basically only in China. 
They haven't moved outside of China yet, but a number of them, of course, will. You don't normally think of China as a decentralized market, but is it a correct assumption or hypothesis that the more decentralized the education system, the more dynamic the ecosystem and the innovation is in ed tech? I think at least at the early stages, when you have countries that have unitary buying or sort of procurement, there's one big contract you can go for. Either you get that or you don't. And if you don't, you're out of business. And that opens itself up to corruption in all sorts of ways that are obviously bad as well. So when you have a preponderance of buyers and a diversity of them, you can have lots more players in the market. And of course, in the Chinese market itself is just massive. One of the challenges we face is this proliferation of systems and solutions at the national level in ministries of education that oftentimes don't talk to each other, don't share data. And yet this desire or this, this idea of being able to decentralize procurement and let a thousand flowers bloom and empower schools, teachers, parents to decide what is the best solution for their context. How do we manage those two aspects of wanting to incentivize innovation and diversity, and at the same time, not wanting to end up with total chaos at the national level? That's a fundamental challenge. I think that no one has an answer for There are lots of different answers based on circumstance or context or politics or ideology or history. In the 90s, where a lot of countries deregulated their telecom sectors, the idea was, let's just try to get government out of the way to let the private sector do what it knows how to do and wants to do and and knows needs to be done. And let's get government out of the way. And in the short term, perhaps instigate or catalyze a lot of stuff that it can be a useful approach, but it's not a very viable long-term approach. Thinking about the extent to which government can set policy and articulate visions that then individual educators and school heads and regional officials and academics and families and companies can buy into it. That's part of the role of government, setting up the rules of the game, rules of the game that are flexible enough to allow for innovation, but also protect the system itself from being locked in to contracts or to technologies that aren't over time exhibiting the value they should, but also protect uh, users. We're talking about children and, and teachers. This has been, I think, one of the challenges in the U.S. and the European markets for about a generation. And it's just now starting in many other places around the world to be on the radar screen of governments and ministries of education. If more and more of the lives of kids especially are going to be mediated through the use of technology, what do we need to do to protect them? What do we need to do to protect them as far as laws, as policies, as just good practices, and still allow for the type of innovation that we think is undefined, but we think is necessary to meet the challenges that we have in helping our kids learn and grow and be happy. This vision and policy is is super challenging, but super important. Do you have any thoughts on the major risks that policymakers need to be thinking about with regard to making sure that things don't go wrong on the data side and the use of data? So the education system is way behind in the use of data compared to almost every other sector in economies. If you look at what happens, decisions are made based on history and maybe on inertia and theory, but oftentimes not greatly informed by much evidence. And that's because there hasn't been a lot of evidence. And that is because there isn't a lot of data. In some cases, we have evidence and it's just a a lack of political will, but that's another issue. But the explosion in, in production of data of all sorts, because You have kids and teachers clicking on things and pointing at things, and you have that data being collected and pulled together in all sorts of ways. That's going to offer huge opportunities for decision makers, for developers of products and services, 
presented in useful ways for learners, kids themselves, and parents to figure out what they're interested in, to help guide what they're going to do, certainly for teachers in the classroom. But there needs to be a, a huge amount of just education and learning about how to do that. And there need to be much more user-friendly tools to be able to do that. And there needs to be a lot more concerted thought about the type of rules of the road and policies where most of these data are going to be and are already now in the hands of groups and companies outside of government and outside of the education sector. And how do we put out a sort of a roadmap for ways that these data can be used and shared in ways that are impactful, ethical, effective? And I think we don't know a lot about this, but we know that absent any rules, people are going to do whatever they can and whatever they can might not be in the best interests of not only society writ large, but if an individual learner somewhere who all of a sudden finds out that she's either tracked into a program for reasons she can't understand, that she is either promoted or not, or encouraged or not, of course, a study for reasons that are outside of her understanding or aren't transparent to her or her parents. Education and bureaucracies themselves are often not very transparent in the way information's flow and decisions are made. So I'm not saying that the government or bureaucracy is the answer, not at all. But I'm just saying that there are all sorts of, of thorny issues that we need to be um, committed to wrestling with, even if we don't have the answers in the short run. Because a lot of the decisions that have been made here in this COVID time, the last couple of months, and opening up classrooms or virtual classrooms or promoting the use of technology have not been accompanied by safeguards around uh, use of data that could come back to haunt policymakers in a number of countries and haunt parents of communities in ways that they haven't anticipated yet. The issue that you raise of just transparency, of making it very transparent, what data is out there, what's being collected, what's being used, and also transparency on rules by which decisions are being made with the use of data through algorithms. The other issue is being able to have open debate and conversation around are there biases in how data is being used? What was the original intent and objective, and is that intent being met? And are there better ways to use this data? I kind of see it as those two stages. Bob, one thing that is not remarked on enough in lots of places, I remember I sat down, I had dinner with a guy who was in charge of the technology in a mid-sized school district in the United States a couple of years ago. He's a teacher, so he didn't come from the technology side, he came from the education side. And he was put in charge of a new unit in the school district that was responsible not only for the educational technology, but for security as well. Because with the introduction of all sorts of new technologies in school and the ability to track what's happening inside and outside of school with what kids are putting into their tablets or laptops and with cameras in schools and the ability to tap funds for quote unquote safety, their budget for technology had gone up considerably. And they thought this guy was the guy to run it. But he said, you know, now I'm in charge not only of technology to help teaching and learning, but also for school safety. And it seems like this is potentially a dangerous confluence of responsibilities under the COVID time as well, where we're looking at different ways to track what's happening and we need to. The potential for surveillance pedagogies to proliferate inside our education systems without understanding what the implications of those are and might be. I think we need to have more open conversations about these things at the level of a system. And when we talk about personalization and personalized learning, we're really talking about in some cases, from one perspective, not saying it's necessarily my perspective, surveilling everything that a child does and knows and doesn't know and what that means for them, for their privacy, for their future life. These things are unclear. And who has access to these data and what they can do with it and how we know 
These are questions I think that will be fundamental to the ed tech space for the next generation. I think you've just defined a theme for a future podcast. We should have a full discussion just on this issue in the future. Our colleague Cristobal Cobo has just written a book about some of these very topics. He, he might have a thing or two to say as well. I know you're uh, the prolific reader and podcast listener. Do you have any recommendations for us on recent books or podcasts that you're listening to? You and I are both education people to start, but people first come to talk to us about the technology stuff. So that's what we've talked about. And I just plowed through a whole bunch of biographies of Silicon Valley companies. The, the Stephen Levy book on Facebook, the book came out on Instagram and the Samsung Rising book, just about a number of these players so we can understand better their history and what they're doing. And Leslie Berlin's Silicon Valley history as well as a way to better understand the context and the language of a lot of these companies that are increasingly involved in education our roles and the roles of the other folks on the World Bank education team are as much as anything about translation between different sectors and helping people come together to have a common language to talk about education and talk about the needs of kids. As far as podcasts, the I Cringely and the, the Twit podcast. This Week in Technology. Yeah, This Week in Technology. I tried to listen to things outside of what I work on day to day as a way to bring in different things. And outside of soccer, you know, football podcasts, I find the diversity of folks on the Sunday Times podcast, the tech podcast, really interesting because they, they talk to the people actually building stuff and Danny Fortson's podcast. And then the A16Z podcast, the big Silicon Valley venture capital firm, they bring on and that sort of perspective, which is definitely not my perspective. It's a useful way for me to understand what people are thinking about who are building lots of these tools. And there are so many, Benedict Evans is gone from there now, but like Connie Chan, who talks a lot about Chinese tech. I think there are lots of things that can be learned from the podcast that she's on as to provide insights into what's happening with uh, technology and education in China. You talk about uh, talking to technology companies, but I also find the A16 uh, podcast fascinating from a VC perspective of those that are investing in uh, companies as well. What's on the horizon? Yeah, I think there's a space in the market for some good ed tech podcasts. People who maybe would stumble across this one here would probably know all of them. So there's nothing I could recommend here that would be a surprise to them. But I think there is a space to talk with folks who are building things and learning things and not just thinking big thoughts about sort of uh, theoretical issues or academic issues. The academic podcast space, I think, is, uh, is pretty vibrant and pretty mature, but there are other things. I think that there are opportunities for folks to talk about, whether it's talking with developers who are building tools, talking with learners themselves and teachers themselves. I think there's a real opportunity for some people to do some interesting things. I think that's what people crave is the how-to. Of yeah. the nuts and bolts of how it actually works. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe with this podcast, we can open up some space for those dialogues. Yeah, hopefully. The conversations around project-based learning and, and learner-centered learning, these are important conversations that more people need to be exposed to and involved in. But they are, in many cases, the same conversations that we've had for 20, 30 years. I don't think there's as much innovation in thinking around there except where it intersects with other things that are happening in, in our space. It's other things that are happening in technology and sort of the overlap of those things. I think that's where there's an opportunity for people to be doing some interesting sharing of perspectives and insights. Absolutely. So on that note, do you have any calls to action for the listeners? One of them is just, we need to get kids connected. We see the quote unquote digital divide, which can mean a whole bunch of things. And there was a focus on this over a decade ago, but the lack of access to reliable Internet connectivity is a crime, I think, and it's a stain 
We have so many kids now who are stuck at home, who are unable to learn and unable to be connected even to the maybe poor options that they have to learn while they're at home because they don't have sufficient connectivity. Increasingly, they have devices. They may have to borrow a device. They may have to use their parents' phone. But the high cost or inavailability of connectivity, I think that's an investment that needs to be made. And there need to be important decisions made about that at a high level because it's really an investment in the future. And uh, if we don't do that, I don't know how we are going to ensure that the advances and the good things that technology may bring about are going to be made available to all students everywhere and not just those privileged enough to have the money and the connections and live in certain places where those things are already available. Absolutely. Reflecting on the past 20 years of work, I feel in many senses we're still at a starting point. So very much looking forward to the next 20 years and what it brings us. Awesome conversation. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and wisdom and looking forward to doing more of these with you. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Bob. And and for those who have listened, if you Google uh, World Bank EduTech, you'll come across lots of the stuff we've been involved in where we try to share insights and perspectives from interesting people that we talk to and make them available to a broader audience. Institutions like the World Bank are seen as sort of closed off institutions. You know, what what happens inside these big bureaucracies? And one of the things we try to do, I think, on the EdTech team is just to share not only what we know. I mean, I don't know what we know. It may be right, maybe wrong. But what we're hearing and interesting questions that we hear people asking. Uh, so if people Google uh, World Bank EduTech, they'll come across some of the stuff that may or may not be uh, interesting or useful to them. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Onward, as we say. Onward and upwards. Thanks so much, Bob. Onward.